Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Foundations Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This weekly podcast is designed to accompany your discipleship group and help you build a strong foundation in the Christian faith. We want to equip you so you can be unleashed to obey Jesus' command to make disciples. We want to make Jesus' final words our first work. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Foundations Podcast. And as I'm recording this, it's starting to get colder outside, and it's starting to get snowy out, which I'm not super excited about. But one of the nice things is that because it's getting colder outside, my wife and I have been spending more time just hanging out inside and watching movies together. Now, one of the most frustrating things about movies, to me at least, is cliffhangers. When the movie just ends and they leave you hanging and not everything is resolved and you have no idea what happens. And I think one of the most famous examples of this comes from Star Wars. Now, I apologize if you're not a Star Wars fan, but you'll probably still get the reference. In the movie, The Empire Strikes Back, there's a very famous cliffhanger at the end. We come to the end of the movie and we find out that Luke Skywalker's father is Darth Vader. The main villain of the original series, the original trilogy, Darth Vader, is Luke Skywalker's father. That's crazy. That's nuts. And then the movie ends, and we have no idea what's going to become of it. We have no idea what's going to happen. Nothing gets resolved. Now, obviously, things are eventually resolved in the next Star Wars movie, but originally, fans had to wait several years before finding out what would happen Next, and speaking of cliffhangers, when we come to scripture, there's a, a very big cliffhanger. And really, it's, it's more than just a cliffhanger. It's, it's a really large gap of time. All right, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. We'll come back to that. Okay, see what I did there? That's, that's a cliffhanger. But first, I want us to recap the Old Testament story. We've been going through the Old Testament together, and I, I want to recap the story a little bit, just as a reminder to make sure that we have this down. So first, of course, remember God creates the world. He creates mankind in his own image, but mankind, instead of spreading God's glory, they end up falling into sin and they spread sin. And very easily, God could have said right there, that's it. I'm done with humanity, but he didn't. Instead, he starts to enact a plan of salvation, and he does that by graciously choosing a man named Abram, later changed to Abraham, and he makes some promises to Abraham. He promises him land and many descendants, and he promises to bring a worldwide blessing through him. And those promises extend not only to Abraham, but also to his descendants, the Israelites, Now, remember, the Israelites become a nation. They multiply. They become greater in number. But they end up in in slavery in Egypt. They're in slavery for 400 years until God raises up Moses. And Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery, through what's known as the Exodus. And they they leave Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. God gives them a, a miraculous victory there. And they come to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, they enter into a covenant with God. And as part of this covenant, if they are faithful to God, then they will dwell in the land promised to Abraham and they will experience blessing and they will show the world what it looks like to live under God's rule. But if they're not faithful to the covenant and to God's law, they will be exiled from the land and they will face 
judgment. So Israel forms a covenant with God at Mount Sinai, and then from there they're supposed to go enter the promised land. But instead they fail to trust God, and they they want to go back to Egypt. So God judges them by making them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the entire older generation dies off. Then the younger generation enters the promised land. Now they're under Joshua's leadership. They enter the promised land. They experience victory. God gives them victory over the nations living in the promised land. But then we come to the time of the judges and we see Israel falls into idolatry. They fall into sin and into these downward spirals of worsening sin. And Israel begins to cry out for a king at this point. And Saul becomes the first king of Israel, but he, he's not a very good king. Then you have David who becomes king, and, and David is described as a man after God's own heart. But even David has flaws as we see he commits adultery and his life starts to spiral out of control somewhat. And then Solomon, David's son, takes over as king, and he also initially shows promise. God gives him the gift of wisdom, and he builds the temple in Jerusalem. But he also falls into idolatry, and he takes many wives, and he starts to turn his back on God. Then under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the nation of Israel splits into two different kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And from there, things really just get worse. Both Israel and Judah fall into sin and into idolatry, and eventually both of them are taken into exile, and they're in exile for 70 years. But eventually, some of them do return to Jerusalem and and the surrounding area, and they rebuild Jerusalem, they rebuild the walls, they rebuild the temple. But things are rebuilt only modestly, And there's no evidence of God's presence returning to the temple. Remember that before, God's presence dwelled in the temple. It's how God dwelled with his people. But now there's no evidence of God's presence in the temple. There's no king from David's line on the throne. Remember that God had promised David that he would have a descendant who would sit on the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, at this point, Israel is still under foreign rule, so Israel doesn't even have a king at this point. And the people are still struggling with sin. Even after going through exile and all these things, they're still struggling with sin. And then the Old Testament ends. It ends. It leaves us with a cliffhanger. We're left waiting for a king who will come and restore Israel. We're left waiting. Which brings us to our topic today, and that's the time period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sometimes people refer to this time as the the silent period. Now, why do we call it the silent period? It's because there's really no inspired word from God during this time. There are no inspired prophets, no inspired writings from this time. Now, the last books in the Old Testament, which would be Malachi and Ezra, Nehemiah, they were written around 430 B.C., And scholars think that Jesus was most likely born around 4 BC. So there's a gap of over 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, I do want to mention that during this time, there were some books written. They're known as the Apocrypha or the Apocryphal books. We're going to talk about those in just a minute. We're going to talk about why we don't believe that they are inspired, why we don't believe they are part of 
scripture. But we'll get there in just a minute. Another cliffhanger for you. Now understand, just because God is quote-unquote silent during this time and there's no inspired word from him, it doesn't mean that God wasn't active. He was incredibly active. He was preparing the way for his son and for the gospel. So I want us to look at the silent period from a couple different angles. First, I want us to kind of talk about the historical context, and then we're going to talk about the theological context. All right, so looking at the historical context first, understand that Israel had been under foreign rule for a long time and in many different ways. So first, we talked about how Israel was in slavery in Egypt, so they were subject to the Egyptians. Then you had the Assyrians come along. They defeated the northern kingdom of Israel. Then the Babylonians defeated the Assyrians. And the Babylonians came and, and defeated the southern kingdom of Judah. Then you have Persia who comes and defeats the Babylonians. And Persia, they're the ones who allow God's people to return to the promised land. And they're the ones in power at the end of the Old Testament. But then during this time between the two testaments, the Greeks come to power. The Greeks defeat the Persians okay, under Alexander the Great. And what the Greeks do is they attempt to install Greek culture in all of the cities throughout this region, throughout the Mediterranean region. This is a process called Hellenism or Hellenization. It comes from the Greek word Hellenikas. And basically, they're trying to Greekize everything. They're trying to make everything Greek, including the language. The Greek language not only became the, the trade language of the region, but it also became the sort of intellectual or literary language of the region as well. Now, why is that important? Well, what language was the New Testament written in? It was written in Greek. And because it was written in Greek and because Greek was spoken throughout that region, the New Testament books were able to be widely circulated and widely read throughout the region. And the Apostle Paul, when we, when we come to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul was able to travel throughout the area on his missionary journeys, and he was able to have a language in common with the people. So wherever he went, he was able to communicate with the people. So understand, God was working behind the scenes here to remove a language barrier for the gospel. He was paving the way for the gospel. Then after the Greeks come the Romans. The Romans defeat the Greeks. This area of the world is, is pretty volatile. There's always somebody vying for power. It's sort of an important area when it comes to location and, and trade routes and all those things. So th there's somebody always vying for control of this region. So the Romans come along and they defeat the Greeks and they're in power during the New Testament period. Okay, So when Jesus is born, the Roman Empire is in control of, of this part of the world. And during the Roman period, the area that included Jerusalem and the, the surrounding region became known as Judea. Okay, And the people who lived there were called Judeans or Jews for short. So that's where that term comes from. Now, just to give you a little bit of background on Roman Empire geography, we're not going to go into this in a lot of detail. We just don't have time. Understand that the Roman Empire was made up of a lot of different provinces. Okay, so some examples of those provinces would include Judea, Samaria, Galilee. You'll hear a lot about those in Scripture. There's also other ones you'll hear more about when Paul is going on his missionary journeys like Macedonia, 
Asia Minor, which by the way is not the continent of Asia, it's modern day Turkey. And each province in the Roman Empire had its own local ruler in a sense. Okay, so Herod is king over Judea when Jesus is born. He's not king over the Roman Empire, he's king over Judea, the the small province within the Roman Empire. Now the Romans did a couple things for this region. They brought relative political stability to this very volatile region. They also constructed a pretty impressive network of roads and, and travel routes. And being a Roman citizen meant that a person had a certain amount of rights and protections. Now, what are the implications of those things? Well, understand that Paul and the early Christians, because of the Romans, they were able to spread the gospel much easier by traveling these extensive road networks. And because they were Roman citizens, they got a certain amount of protection from local rulers. Paul would have been killed much earlier. He would have been martyred much earlier if he wasn't a Roman citizen. So he had some measure of protection. Again, God was at work behind the scenes to prepare the way for Jesus and for his gospel. So that's the historical context of the time between the Testaments. But now I want us to think about the theological context. Now, remember the Israelites had been taken into exile and some of them returned to Jerusalem and to the promised land, the surrounding region. But a lot of them remained scattered throughout the region, throughout the Mediterranean region, and they continued to spread throughout that area. So we start to see some changes in the religion of the Jewish people during this time. This is where what we know as Judaism today starts to kind of take shape. Now, this religion is obviously based on the Old Testament, but it undergoes some pretty major changes during this time. Remember, during the Old Testament era, everything for God's people was based around the temple. The temple was the center of worship. But now during this time between the Testaments, because people are more spread out and they can't all access the temple, we start seeing these local places of worship and learning called synagogues. These synagogues start popping up all over the place. And we also see the rise of teachers, also known as rabbis, in these local synagogues. And since the the Jewish people are more spread out and they're less centralized in a sense, we also start to see new interpretations of scripture forming, and we see new traditions developing as well. And this is where you start to see these religious parties like the Pharisees and the Sadducees starting to form as they develop these new traditions and new interpretations of scripture. Now, also the position of high priest becomes corrupt at this point, and the priesthood in general kind of becomes corrupt. It becomes more political than anything else. But an interesting note about these changes to the Jewish people's religion, when Paul was on his missionary journeys, whenever he went into a new area, he would usually go into the synagogue first. Because remember that Paul was trained as a Jewish scholar. He knew scripture well. So when he went into a synagogue, it gave him a place where he had common ground with the people. He could talk about scripture and he could interpret scripture in light of what Jesus had done. So again, God paved the way for the gospel to be spread. Now, one last thing I want to talk about here today are, as I mentioned earlier, these apocryphal books or the apocrypha. Now, apocrypha just means things that are hidden 
And it refers to 14 books that were written between the Old Testament and the New Testament during this quote-unquote silent period. Now, I'm going to put the list of those books in the show notes. I'm not going to read them all to you now. But you can access those show notes at bedfordalliance.church. I would encourage you to go look at those when you get a chance. Understand that some traditions in Christianity recognize these books as scripture. They include them in the Bible. But Protestant traditions, evangelical Christians, including Bedford Alliance Church, don't recognize these books as scripture. Now, why is that? Well, there are several reasons, but... One of the biggest ones is that they actually contain doctrinal and historical and geographical errors and inconsistencies. So, for example, some doctrines that these books teach include things like salvation by works, creation out of preexistent matter instead of creation out of nothing, also things like prayers for the dead, and they contain passages that are sometimes used to support belief in purgatory. So these books just don't contain the marks of divine writing. They contain errors both doctrinally and historically and geographically. They also don't claim authority for themselves. When we look at scripture, you'll see a lot of things like, thus says the Lord, or God said this, God said that. It's filled with God's words and commands. But in the apocryphal books, we don't see any of those references. They never claim to be the word of God, and actually they say the opposite. They contain references to a widespread belief amongst the Jews that there was no longer an inspired word from God. In 1 Maccabees, it talks about how prophets had ceased to appear among the people. They're saying there's no more divine inspired word from God. So these books show an understanding that there's currently no divine word from God being given. They don't claim any authority as the word of God. And along with that, these books were not regarded as divine by the Jews who gave us these books. These books were written by the Jews, and even they didn't consider them to be divine. The Jewish people have the same Old Testament as us as Protestant Christians. And there was no dispute between Jesus and the Jews over what books are in the Old Testament. Now, they argued about a lot of different things. But this wasn't one of them. There was no dispute on what books were part of the Old Testament, and it's the same Old Testament that we have. And and this is a big one. Jesus and the New Testament authors directly quote the Old Testament about 300 times with many other indirect references. But there's not a single mention of any apocryphal books in the New Testament. Not a single reference, not a single quote. Now, some people will say, what about Jude? Jude references the book of 1st Enoch. Well, first of all, 1st Enoch is not one of the apocryphal books. People often miss that. He was citing a a common Jewish work, and he he was not citing it as authoritative. He was quoting something that his readers would have been familiar with. So there's not a single mention of the apocryphal books anywhere in Scripture. If we put all the evidence together, there's a very strong case to not include these books as part of the Bible, as part of Scripture. So what then is our take on the Apocrypha? Well, we don't believe that they are inspired. We don't believe they are the Word of God. But they can provide us with some useful historical information, especially into this silent period between the Testaments. We see what happens historically, and we can see how Judaism kind of changes over time. Now, just to recap today, remember the Old Testament ends with a cliffhanger. 
there are 400 plus years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We often call this time the silent period because there are no inspired writings or no inspired prophets from God during this time. But God is very clearly still at work preparing the way for Jesus and for his gospel. Remember, the Greeks established a common language and culture throughout the region. The Romans brought an extensive road network and political stability to the area. And then Jewish synagogues became common during this time as well. And all of those things paved the way for Paul and the early Christians to be able to spread the gospel by traveling on the road networks and speaking a common language with the people and and using the synagogues as a starting point for sharing the gospel in new areas. God was clearly at work. So as we look at our own lives, sometimes God seems silent in our lives. I know he has to me and I'm sure he has for you as well. But we have to wait faithfully on God. Even when he leaves us with a a cliffhanger of sorts in our lives, we have to remember that he's still in control and his timing is always best. And he's often working behind the scenes in ways that we can't even imagine right now. So we have to wait on him. We have to trust God. God's timing is always best. Galatians 4, 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. God sent Jesus at the perfect time, at the fullness of time. So while 400 plus years of silence might seem like a long time, God's timing was perfect. So let's put our full trust in God. And let's make Jesus' final words, his command to make disciples, let's make that our first work. 